You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, several years ago, I had a buddy of mine confided me that he was having trouble with the ladies, uh, one in particular, and he said, I don't understand it. He said, things seemed to be going well. We were getting along, and then they got awkward. It got weird. And so he was asking me about it, and I said, well, let me ask you uh, some diagnostic questions. I said, "Uh, have you at any time initiated moments where the two of you were just hanging out one-on-one? And he said, yes. I said, about how many times? He's like, four or five times. I was like, all right, four or five times. I said, in any of those moments, did you touch her hand, maybe even hold her hand, walk through a zoo? And he was like, yeah, I guess we did that once. I'm like, okay. Uh, And after a few more questions, I said, well, have you had, using the vernacular of the time, have you had a DTR yet? And he said, what is that? And I said, I think I just found our problem. I said, a DTR man, a define the relationship. I said, you've been initiating time with this girl and you've not clarified your intent. So she's got some confusion on what's going on in here. You need to tell her how you're associated with her. You need to have a DTR. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have experienced it, where you were maybe at a party with all your friends and everybody's talking, everyone's telling stories. And then as you're telling stories, somebody cute seems to be really engaged with what you're saying. And so over time, you're not just talking to them, you're kind of more talking to them. And then everyone's talking, but you two start talking and then y'all keep talking. And then as people start to leave, you're still talking. And then at the end of it, you come up with some lame thing of like, hey, uh, can you text me where that coffee shop is you mentioned? Let me give you my number. Some weird geographic excuse to get their number. And so the texting continues and suddenly you're DMing and commenting on their posts and, and then you start to go to coffee together and lunch together and then you go to dinner together and suddenly people start asking you, what are y'all doing? And you go, we're just talking, we're just talking. And then one night, maybe you're in the car. Maybe you're coming back from dinner. Your phone lights up and you look down and you go, Pfft. She goes, what? Some of my buddies, they were asking if I was out to you to, with you tonight. And, you know, they're always asking me, like, what are you all doing? They're asking you stuff. Yeah, they're asking me stuff. My friends are doing that to me. They're doing that to you. Yeah, they're doing that to me too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, what are they saying to you? Well, they're asking, like, what's going on with you guys? Are y'all, like, dating now? Is that your girlfriend? You're like, oh, they're saying that to me too. They're saying that to you too. Yeah, they say that to me too. Oh, my gosh, that's so crazy, right? <sighs> so when they say that to you, What do you say? (laughs) Who am I to you? Now, gentlemen, when that comes out, you have entered a moment (laughs) that the next words out of your mouth are going to take you down one of two pathways. (laughs) If you tell them, I say we're pals, bud, right? You're on an an, an off-ramp, right? (laughs) To friendship and then acquaintance. But if you say hey, I tell them I'm interested in you, that I could see this going to a place of commitment, of covenant with you. You've opened up this whole new door of depth and intimacy. But whatever happens, it's not staying the same. Now, why do I mention this? Because this is where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We are at the DTR. That if you look at the book, if you want to simplify the way Mark is laid out, it basically breaks in half. 
And the first half of the book, chapters one through eight, is all answering the question, who is Jesus? And Mark tells us, the reader, right at the top, this is the story of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. But the people living with him don't get that announcement. They have to understand and consider it as they see him. So in chapter one, he tells the disciples, follow me, just follow me and watch me. And as he does, they're seeing him and, and they're asking those questions. Who is this guy? Who teaches with this kind of authority? Who, who is this that the wind and waves obey him? Who has the authority to forgive sins? They're evaluating who is this man? And now in this moment, Jesus will initiate a conversation. Who am I to you? And this will open up the back half of the book, the second half of the book, that questions shift from who is he to what is his quest? Why is he here? What has he come to do? And the first half of Mark is who is he? It's about his identity. The second part is why is he here? It's about his, his activity. But these have implications for our destiny as well. But Jesus is going to push a question like you do in dating. It's not just about identity. It's about identification. It's about association. I gave you a year to see me and see what I'm like. Now what will you do with me? And so as we look at this moment together, notice in verse 27, it says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, geographically, that's as far north as you can get and still be in Israel. That he is going to literally take them as far away from Jerusalem where he will go to die as possible. He'll go out to a remote place to have this serious conversation with them. And at the end of this conversation, he will turn and they will never come back to Galilee. He will march towards Jerusalem with his disciples and then face his death and burial and resurrection. But here in this moment, he takes them on up to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way there, Jesus initiates a conversation about himself, about his identity. And it says, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? What's the word on the street about me? And they tell him, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. The answer is, you're like one of the great men who have spoken for God. That's who all these guys were. Great men who were at some level spokesmen for God. And they say, you're one of those. You're one of the powerful people who speaks powerful things spiritually. You might even the best in that category. You might be one of the great ones back from the dead. You may be a really significant prophet along with them that in the class of religious leaders, you're at the top of that class, but you're in that zone. In other words, you're a really, 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 really neat guy. It's the same assessment much of the world has of them. But then Jesus presses deeper, and in verse 29, he says, but who do you say that I am? Now, the interesting thing about Greek, the language this book was written in, is that in Greek, you can change up where words are in the sentence. And if you want to emphasize something, you put it as the first word in the sentence. And the first word in this sentence is the word you. And what you realize is Jesus asked that first question to set up this one. You. Who do you say that I am? And he initiates this conversation about the nature of their relationship. And the movie Jesus of Nazareth catches this moment perfectly. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's an older one. Ernest Borgnine in it. James Earl Jones is young in it. But the idea is they're at this moment, in this moment, and they're sitting around a campfire. And at the campfire, Jesus asks them, who do people say I am? And they start laughing. All the disciples are like, some of them think you're John the Baptist. <laughs> so crazy. What? Some of them think you're Elijah. What? Some think you're Jeremiah. Oh, that's right. And Jesus is like, <laughs> who do you say that I am? And it gets dead quiet. All you hear is the crackling of the fire they realize this is a critical moment. Who am I to you? And Peter steps up, says, you're the Christ, 
that word Christ in Greek is the word Messiah in Hebrew. It means anointed one. It's talking about pouring oil on somebody. You would anoint someone to identify them as a special leader under God. You anoint kings. You anoint priests. But all through the prophecies of the Old Testament, there was a king of kings coming. There was a great high priest coming. There was the centerpiece of human history, the hero of our story. And Peter says, that's who you are. You're not just a great spokesman. You're not just a moral leader. You're not just a spiritual guide. You are the Christ. You're the centerpiece of the human story. You are in a category all your own. Matthew and Luke, when they record this moment, will see Jesus affirms it. Mark doesn't, but as you see it, Mark will build off it. Jesus will build off this identification. He does not disagree. Yes, that's who I am. I am God's hero, the center of the story. I am the Christ. It's interesting there in Caesarea Philippi, Philip was the son of Herod. He was given that region, and he named his capital city Caesarea Philippi to honor the Caesar. And when you would honor the Caesar, you would offer incense and say, Caesar is Lord. There's no man higher than them. And there in Caesarea Philippi, Peter says, no, no, you're the Lord. Everyone else is playing games. You're the Lord. It's interesting, though, when he identifies Jesus that way, look at Jesus' response in verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He says, don't tell anybody, which is kind of weird. Jesus is not Billy Graham yet. It's like the anti-evangelist. Don't tell anybody. And you go, why? And what you find out is they got the right identity you're the Christ, but they got the wrong activity, what he's here to do. It's like they got the right word, but the wrong content. And so Jesus now begins to press in and talks about, yeah, that's who I am. Now let me tell you what I'm here to do. And then you see in verse 31, it says, he began to teach them. That means he hasn't done this before. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating it plainly. That begin means he wasn't doing this before. And now you watch as we move on, he repeats this over and over again in chapter 8, 9, and 10. This becomes the emphasis, what I'm here to do. On their way to Jerusalem, he'll keep bringing this subject up. And it says he did it plainly. That means there was hints in the past. He talked about the bridegroom being taken away at some point, but they didn't really know what he was talking about. Now he's like, let me be claimed. We're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to reject me. They're going to murder me. They're going to bury me. And then I'm going to rise. And they've never said that before. Why say it to him now? Why pick this moment to bring it up? He's doing the same thing you do in relationships. With deeper commitment comes deeper intimacy. You don't share the depths of your heart with someone you just met. Most of us don't. There's probably some relational unhealth there if you do. But the idea is, if I really want to offer someone the deepest parts of me, I got to know, are you going to be trustworthy with my heart, right? How committed to you are me as a friend, as a brother? And so here they are, they're saying, you're the Christ. And he's like, okay, you got who I am. Now let me explain to you what I'm here to do. With greater commitment comes greater intimacy, right? And so he begins to teach them this. But what he teaches them, they violently reject so you got to see that this conversation starts off good, but what Jesus says next causes Peter to rebuke him. That's the strongest language that could be used. It's what Jesus was doing of demons earlier. And so they don't like the next sentence. And it's because Jesus says something that if you were to summarize it, he puts six words together that were deeply disturbing. The son of man must suffer. So let's break it down. Son of man. What does that mean? It could mean the son of a guy. 
and your dad's a guy. It's used that way in the Old Testament sometimes. But in the prophet Daniel, in a difficult day, Daniel starts getting visions of God establishing his kingdom through his Messiah. And he says this in Daniel chapter 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And they're like, you're that guy. You're the king that's coming and God's giving you all peoples, all nations, all bow for all time. That's who you are. You are the king. We've been preaching the kingdom is at hand because the king is here. You are that son of man. Incidentally, when Jesus gets murdered, it's because he quotes this text in Jerusalem and says, that's about me. And the elders and chief priests and scribes rip their clothes and say, that's blasphemy. And that's why he's killed for saying, I'm this son of man. So they got that right. But what Jesus does is he says, son of man, dominion over all must suffer? Huh? No, 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 no. The son of man doesn't suffer. Son of man deals out suffering to all the bad guys, right? He will overcome injustice and suffering. He won't be consumed by it. And so there were passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant, but they always wondered, like, who is that that will bear the iniquity of us all? It can't be the Messiah, because he's just going to rule in power and wreck shop and set up justice. But you're saying the son of man must suffer? And not only are you predicting that he will suffer, he says he must suffer. That word in Greek is a little word day, it means it's D-E-I, and it means it's necessary. So he's not just saying I will die, like I'm going to stumble into Jerusalem and accidentally get martyred. He's saying it has to be this way. It's the language of divine design. God's rigged it this way. I must suffer. It's necessary for the Son of God to go to a cross. Now, we hear that, and maybe you go, why? I mean, I know you Christians talk about that all the time. You're like, lead me to the cross where you died. You're like, I don't know what I want to do there. Ugh. Like, what? why? Why? Why was it necessary for him to die? Well, Tim Keller explained it once in a way that I love, and let me uh, update some of it. But uh, the idea is that whenever uh, a sin is committed against you, a debt is incurred. Whenever a sin is committed, a debt is incurred. You, you can think about it economically. Let's say you went to buy the new iPhone. And let's say you get it and I see it and I'm with you and I'm like, ooh, is that titanium? Can I see it? Let me hold it. Wow. And then let's say I go, oops, and drop it into the Potomac. It's gone. You got a choice at that moment. Number one, you can look at me and say, that'll be $1,000. Buy me a new iPhone. And you say, you pay for it. You dropped it, your fault, buy me a phone. Or you say, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. But that act of forgiveness does not resurrect your iPhone. What? It's bad. Like, that doesn't happen. So if you forgive them, now you got to go pay $1,000 to get another iPhone. Or you have $1,000 less fun in apps, right? Someone's going to pay. They're going to pay or you're going to pay, but somebody's got to pay it. Do you see that? And the same can work in relational dynamics. Like, let's say somebody um, offends you. Let's say they shame you. Let's say they mar your reputation. Let's say they trash you at work. And so maybe you lose some status, some reputation. Maybe you lose a, a, a promotion opportunity and someone wrongs you. What happens? You go, 
they must pay. I will shame them. They will face even more shame. I'll get them canceled. I'll get them fired. They'll be living on the streets. You want them to, to pay for what they've done? Or you go, I forgive you. But if you do that, what happens? You bear the cost of what they did. They go free, but you got to hold all that resentment and bitterness. And every time their name comes up, you start tasting bile in your throat. You're Somebody got a tic tac. I was just sorry. The anger bubbles up inside. Like you got to carry it in your chest, and it's hard to carry, and it can it can be toxic to you to carry it. But somebody's going to pay for it. It's interesting. Mike Tyson uh, a couple years ago interviewed New York Giants star running back Saquon Barkley, and as he was interviewing Barkley, Barkley said confidently, "You wrong me. I cut ties." And he said that, like, that's how it is. You do something wrong to me, I cut you out of my life. I don't even know you. And yet as soon as he said that, Tyson speaks up and says, then the devil wins. And you can tell it through Barkley off. He's like, what? And he goes, okay, you're telling me that if someone did me wrong, the devil wins? Like, I got to be the bigger man and forgive them and not cut ties? Why would I do that? And Tyson, who, if you don't know, has not had an easy life, said this because he changed you. He's your master now, because he was in charge of your emotions. He's not your enemy, he becomes your master, because you are not who you used to be now. He stole that from you. So if you hold on to that debt, hold on to that payment, it changes you, that, that, that it messes with you, that this thing, somebody's gotta take it. Somebody's got to pay for it. And you're either going to wish payment on them or seek payment on them, or you're going to eat it and it's going to eat up you and change you. What do we do with it? And yet the bigger story is whenever a sin is committed against you, two people are offended, you and the God who made you. And when God looks down, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so when God looks down on all of us and sees the violation of his law, somebody has to pay. And there's two options. You... And he says, you get what you deserve, which is not intimacy with me. Or he says, I'll pay it. It was interesting. I talked to a young man once after a gathering like this, and he came forward. And he was like, man, y'all just keep saying that, like, anything you did wrong, whatever sins you've committed, Jesus will forgive you. Just put your faith in Jesus, and he forgives it all. And then he started crying, and he looked at me, and he says, and you have no idea what I've done. And I said, no, I don't. I said, but let me tell you, son, this grace isn't cheap. God didn't just wave his hand over it and go, you're forgiven. Jesus Christ will condescend to leave heaven, live the perfect life you did not, and then be brutally and shamefully murdered to pay your debt with his blood. This is not cheap grace. It cost him everything, but he paid it for you and for me. Somebody's got to pay. And Jesus says, the son of man has shown up to pay your debt so you can be set free. And it has to be that way. You don't get justice without it. And so it must be this way. The solution of our God for our sin is a suffering Savior. Justice and love will meet on that cross. And he states it plainly, but verse 32, Peter responds, and he took him aside and began to rebuke him. He's like, I don't like this. I wanted the king that just gets everything he wants and makes life easy. I don't want a spirituality with suffering in it. 
I want a God that just gives me the stuff I want. I'm here to get stuff. And you were going to be the king who wrecked shop, sets up a kingdom, and I was going to be next to you and get stuff. Now you're telling me the way is suffering. And so he rebukes Jesus. Jesus, you're going negative. There's no suffering here on my watch. And Jesus sees that and rebukes not just Peter, but what's behind that statement. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. To conceive of the way of God without suffering is satanic. That's what Jesus says. The way of glory leads along the path of suffering. Jesus said, I will lead the way. But then he says, if you're with me, you got to follow. And so in verse 34, it says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, he's like, this is conversations for everybody. He's like, let me just make something clear, folks. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It's interesting, the commentary JR, commentator J.R. Edwards said it this way. He says, Jesus is not an objective datum that like a rock under a microscope can be observed and examined in supposed neutrality. The statement, you are the Christ, imposes a claim on the one who says it. And the Son of Man calls those who would know him to follow it. I'm walking the path of suffering. You want to come with me? Then you deny yourself. That means no more doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. That means no more taking this life that was given to you and saying, I'm going to chase all of it after my comfort, my pleasure, my joy, my glory. No more of that. You deny those impulses and you take up your cross. That was not a metaphor back then. It was a place of horrible, shameful death. You take up a cost. You take up rejection. You take up shame. You take up cost. And it may even cost you your life. And then you follow me. You persist in this as I walk you into it. That's Jesus' sales pitch. Not the most engaging for first-timers. You want to come with me? Let me tell you what this road is. Filled with pain. No more doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. It's going to take some rejection. Your intimacy with me will cost you. And then you got to keep going all the way to death. Who would sign up for that? Why would I pitch Christianity to you this way? If you're a newcomer, you're like, hey, let's go ahead and slip out. Who would do this? Well, let me say this. Uh, you all met Alex earlier. He did the hosting. Uh, Alex, in a little less than a year from now, uh, will be dead. Alex is engaged. And he's getting married. And make no mistake, church, every wedding is a funeral. Because when you get up there in front of your friends, the old single you dies that day. The you that just did whatever you want, whenever you wanted to do it. Spent your money on whatever you wanted to buy, whenever you wanted to buy it. That's over, son. You're going to step in front of the church and murder that guy. And then you're going to be locked up in a relationship where it's no longer doing whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. And it's not just you have that moment of death. You must persistently walk in that sacrifice. Because it's not just a moment of death. Suddenly you're going to start having to buy things you never thought you'd spend money on. Like, really? How many throw pillows till, till it's enough? And you're just going to have to keep spending money on things and buying things and, and appliances. And then you're going to get home from work and you're going to have to talk about not just what you did, but how you felt about what you did. And then you're going to have to hear about how they feel about what they did. And then meanwhile, ladies, you're marrying a man in your bed that will be hairier, sweatier, and louder than you expected. And as you share your feelings, he's not going to understand them at all. He's going to look like a confused puppy. He doesn't know what's going on inside of you. And so you're going to have to struggle to explain to him the complexities of emotional maturity. And you're going to have to keep working this out with each other. Then your buddies will call and say, let's go to a movie. And you'll go, yeah, guys, let's go. No, wait, hold on a second. 
beep, boom, boom. Hey, babe, um, the guys are going to a movie and they wanted to, no, what, no, what's wrong, babe? What? No, no, um, no, I can come home. Yeah, no, I can come home. That's going to be you for the rest of your life until you die. Why would you do that? Why are we not trying to stop Alex from this? I'll tell you the answer. That I think he would say to Judith, and, and he should. He'd say, there is a cost. That single, independent, autonomous me dies. It really does. But the benefits are better. See, some of y'all are disappointed that he's taken. You're like, who's that guy? He's engaged. It's over. But, you know, the <laughs> concepts are transferable to other people. The right answer is that there is a cost with commitment, but the benefit's greater. And I choose you for better force and sickness or health. Richer or poor, no matter what comes, it's better when I'm with you. And that's what Jesus is going to offer. But, but there's even more at stake. Because Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, my message, you'll save it. He says, if you let go of this life, you will find life with me. It's not just that this will be better. This is where life is. But then he, he issues a, a warning. He says, but if you try to save this life, you're going to lose it. If you go, no, I want to control my life. I want to be the captain of my ship, the master of my destiny. If that's what you do, I'm going to get my money, my glory, my power, my success, whatever it may be. He says, at some point when you chase all that, you will lose it. It will go away. Lucius Septimus Severus is not a Harry Potter character. He was an emperor of Rome in the third century. And he wrote this after ruling the known world. He died with these words. I have been everything, and everything is nothing. A little urn will contain all that remains of one for whom the whole world was too little. He said, I let my passions and desires fill my life, and I obtained and obtained and obtained, and at the end, I never got satisfied. And now, I'll be a pile of ash that fits in a bucket. There's no life here. Post Malone said it, if you need a more updated reference. Give me something, something real. He said, I got all, but I guess I'm hard to please. And then he begs, and what's wild is he makes the song sound like a gospel song. He instinctively goes to religious sounds. Give me something, something real. And he said, I would trade it all just to be at peace. He said, I got it all. Everything I was chasing, and it's empty, and I would trade all of it for something real, because this isn't real. And what he's struggling with in his modern vernacular is, I tried to save my life, and there's no life here. Can someone show me where it is? So Jesus isn't being judgmental or something. He is trying to save your life. You try to fill your life with the world in unhealthy ways. And I'm not saying you shouldn't excel in your career and do well in life and have relationships. But if you make that your source, it will let you down. And yet he says, but I am here and I'm the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am the author and perfecter of your faith. I am taking your sin on me and offering my life to you. But that road will not be easy, but it's better. Who do you 
say that I am. That's where we are with Jesus. You've got to make a choice. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I just want you to catch there how much Jesus centers himself. He does not position himself to be a good moral teacher. He's not a life coach, not a guru. He says, how you respond to me and my words determines your eternal destiny. That's how Jesus saw himself. So he's either crazy or he really is not just the king of kings, but the king of you and me. And not just a savior, but our savior, if we say yes to his offer of relationship. It's a hard message. It's a scary one. I know for me, I was so scared. If I trust Jesus, he's going to rule my life. I had things I wanted. And I thought, I just know if I trust him, he's going to take from me. He's going to take it. I told him in middle school, I will go to church. I'll be a good kid. But I want to be great at football to get the approval of my dad. Stay out of it. I said that to him. Some of y'all just feel that way. I said those things. And then he broke my femur. (laughs) Biggest bone you got. And that career was over. And I got to be honest with you, I was mad about it. And as I got mad at him about it, man, I would beat on his chest. I was furious with God for taking from me what I thought I'd find life. And there's a lot to that story. But I'll tell you, there was one day where I had a buddy that, that did have a lot of success in football. And he was like, Ben, it was really great. He's like, but you know, that's a career that you top out pretty fast. And if you made it your ultimate source, it leaves you. And that's a dangerous place to be. You've got to live for something bigger. And for me, I found that when I was angry at God for taking that from me, what he unearthed in that anger was, it's not just that you loved the game. You wanted that game to give you the affirmation and love of a father. That's not going to give it to you. You're looking for life where you can't find it. Football's not wrong, but what you're doing with it is wrong. You need to come to a father God who loves you to find that identity. You need me. And it was a good change. Some cost, but hey, at 5'9", 170, I didn't have a long career in football. It was a good trade. This is better. But it's a hard word and they're discouraged and we won't teach all through the rest of this, but he tells them, there's some of you, you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power. And so some people hear that and they go, what does he mean by that? Does he mean like one of them is not gonna die till Jesus returns? Like John the apostle's in a cave somewhere 2,000 years old going, it's almost time. Like, no. There's other places in the Bible where people will say something's gonna happen when something else happens, but they don't mean it's culmination, but it's inauguration. Clearest example would be when the angel comes to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a boy. His name is John. He's going to be a prophet of the Most High. He's going to make straight the paths of the Lord. He's going to return the hearts of fathers to their sons. He's going to do all this stuff. And then Zechariah's like, I don't know. How's that going to work? And the angel's like, because I'm an angel, man, who sits in God's presence. So now you can't talk for nine months. How about that? Just sit and think about it. All right. He says, and you're going to not talk till this comes to pass. Well, what's this? All of it? the Messiah coming and, and, and fathers turning to their sons and all this stuff. Now, as soon as baby J the B is born, daddy starts celebrating. So he just had to wait until the inauguration of this moment. And then this happened. And so I think what Jesus is doing here is saying, hey, 
you're not going to taste death until you just taste a little bit of the majesty that's coming. Let me tell you, I said a hard thing. You will follow me down a road of suffering. To associate with Jesus will cost you. And some of you know that very clearly. You say, if I associate with him, it will cost me friends. It may cost me my boyfriend. It may cost me followers. I may get passed up in a promotion. That's real. It will cost me. And yet he's saying he's worth it and he's better. And yet in this moment where that's hard to hear, a couple days later, he takes him up on a mountain and lights up like a Christmas tree. And he's not plugged in. And they're not sure what to do with majesty like that. So they say dumb stuff. Peter's like, we should build some tents. We should put some up here. You got Moses here who represents the law. You got Elijah who represents the prophets. The law and the prophets are testifying to the Messiah. This is crazy. Let's stay on the mountaintop. Let's stay where it's easy and shiny and wonderful. Let's stay up here. Let's build some tents and move here. I love this mountain. Let's pick up real estate. I bet it's cheap right now. He's going to do all this. And he gets interrupted by God Almighty. This one's my son. Listen to him. I told you at the beginning, this is the story of the Christ, the son of God. You said he's the Christ. Let me fill in the rest of that. He's my son. Listen to it. Because there's difficulty, but there is glory. Here's a little foretaste of it. But yeah, you're going to have to go back down the mountain and there's a demon-possessed kid waiting. We didn't read that text. It gets weird at the bottom. Life's hard. And this road will lead to a cross and it will lead to a grave. But then it'll lead to an empty grave and it'll lead to a kingdom that will never perish or fade. And so there is cost but the benefit's greater. And he said, if you associate with me now, then in the end, when this is all over, I associate with you. You say yes to the ring, you get the honeymoon. That's what he was saying. You're not ashamed of me? I'm not ashamed of you. We go together. Is you ashamed of me? No, no, no. And then you don't get me in the end, and you don't get my kingdom. Let me close it this way. Let, let's say I propose to you, okay? I know it's a stretch, but just imagine it. Just imagine... We've been dating, we've been hanging out. It's going really well, or at least I think so. And let's say we go to a nice dinner one night, I take you out, and then we go on a walk among the monuments at night. It's very romantic. And at some critical point in the right lighting, I hit a knee and I just say, I love you. I want a relationship with you. I want my life bound together with you forever. If you say yes, what happens? We both cry, we hug each other, the family runs out, we take some photos, all right, and we march our way towards a wedding day and then towards a honeymoon and happily ever after, right? Or let's say I hit a knee and say, I just want to be with you. And you go, oh, um, no. I mean, you're great, but no. Then I go, oh, okay. You know, I'm just going to stay here. This is a good spot for me. You can catch a ride. I'm going to curl up here. And, um, and, and, and there'll be a, a journey of healing, but we'll both move on our separate ways. Or there is another option. Let's say I hit my knee and say, I want a relationship with you. And you go, huh, uh, I don't know. I got to think about it. Then I say, oh, Okay, well, jump the gun. Um, you need some more information to make an informed decision, okay? Uh, can we go to dinner next week? I'll bring my resume, kind of give you some background, uh, some of my qualities, and let's just sort of like evaluate me. And so your options are yes, no, 
or maybe. But I have to tell you this. At some point, maybe defaults to no. I mean, just if, if we die, then it became a no. Maybe never defaults to yes. But let me say this. Let's say I move on. I get some counseling, do some inner work. I feel better inside. I meet someone else. We begin to date. It's going really well. I hit a need, tell them I want you. They say yes. We cry. The family comes out. We take photos. And on the wedding day, we stand up there and before God and everybody commit our lives together. And as we're running out to the car to head off to the honeymoon and our friends are blowing bubbles and ringing bells, suddenly you show up at the end of the line with your suitcases and go, heard we're going to the Bahamas. I love it. Ooh, I love the beach. Let's go. Well, now I'm the one who has to say something awkward. I go, ooh, if you didn't commit to the ring, you don't get the honeymoon. You got to commit to me if you want to go where I'm going. And so at some point, a yes means for better or for worse, but then it means the kingdom with the king. Maybe is not a bad place to be right now. And some of you, you're at maybe with Jesus. You're like, I came here to try to improve my life, and you're telling me that Jesus is on a knee with a ring out, and I got to decide, like, he's not asking on date one. There's a whole gospel. He let his disciples roll with him for over a year. Just, just watch me, guys. And for you, you may need to be on a journey of going, I need some more information. But you're telling me Jesus says he's not just the center of the whole human story, but the center of my story. Yes, that's what I'm saying and what he's saying. And you got to deal with that. You got to tell him yes or no, or maybe you tell him maybe. And if you say maybe, I would say, let us give you a Bible. Read about him. Ask questions. He's not scared of those. Hang out with us. Keep journeying with us through the book to see what he's all about. But then at some point, you got to decide, do I want him? Is he my king? Who am I to you? And you say yes to him, there will be suffering. There will be a cost to associating with him. But the benefits are greater. And in the end, eternal life. You say, no, you don't get him and you don't get life. And you say, maybe, it's okay. But don't let maybe be where you sit because that defaults to no. But we got the king of kings saying, I gave everything first. I'm not asking you to do something I wasn't willing to do. I stepped into your story. And I took on suffering. I took on cost. I took on the worst so you could take on the better. I took on your sin so you could take on my life. I took on your rejection so you can be adopted into the family of God. That's our king. He says, I'm not asking you to do something I wasn't willing to do. I gave all to be in a relationship with you. Who do you say that I am? If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.